Welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. Once a month, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Jake, what is on the docket today? We've got a review of John Carpenter's 1984 romantic sci-fi road film starring Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen, Starman. Plus, we've also got some really rad recommendations you should definitely check out. But first... Hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. So this is the time that we dedicate to the John Carpenter Newswire up top. Um, There hasn't been a ton of news since our last episode. Uh, So I've got just kind of a a few quick little little things that I'm going to mention. And I'm going to put links to these in the show notes of the show. So if you want to check them out, um, definitely do so. Uh, But I don't know how much there is to talk about. So we'll just we'll go over them real quick. Uh, First off. Uh, following on the Halloween news that is continuing, uh, it appears Jamie Lee Curtis has wrapped on the shooting of Halloween. So, uh, they are, they are getting close to post-production on that. Do you know they've officially announced John Carpenter doing the score? I know everybody's danced around it and talked around it, but. So I haven't read anything where anyone has said, yes, definitely John Carpenter is doing it. But yeah, it's, it's been the same thing where John Carpenter says, I would love to do it. And then. Uh, Cody Carpenter says, oh, I'd love to do it with, with my dad as well. And Danny McBride says, we'd love to have John Carpenter do it. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, they're at the point now where they're probably getting into going into editing. And then once they have an edit, we'll, we'll find out if he's actually scoring it or not. Hopefully. I mean, fingers crossed. There's no reason for him not to. I will say this as a Carpenter cultist from time to time, I have to pitch things like, Hey, John Carpenter's awesome. Uh, which I do believe, but I, I would, somebody had mentioned uh, Michael Myers at work, and I was like, "Oh, new Halloween threw every threw away everything since the first movie." John Carpenter's coming back to write the score, and it has Jamie Lee Curtis, and that and that last part is where people are like, "Really? <laughs> Ooh, second movie, or, or you know, effectively a second movie, and it has Jamie Lee Curtis and John Carpenter." I'm in. Yeah, like pe- people want to see this because people like the original. And maybe don't like the sequels. Well, there's so much that you can also do whenever instead of having like, you know, you you think they've done they've done a sequel, you know, every let's I don't know how long, but let's say every two to five years for from here to eternity uh, by throwing out all of that history and just saying this only follows, you know, what are we at now? 30 years? No, we're are we at 40 years later? We're at 40 years later. Um, that that gives you a lot of opportunity to create a rich history in between and then play with it. So um, moving on to the next bit of, of news um, there was a really great interview that came out in February last month uh, with John Carpenter. He appeared on Mick Garris's postmortem podcast. And I don't know, Jake, if you're familiar with Mick Garris, he's, he's interviewed John Carpenter a thousand times. Um, there's a really good series of interviews that he did with him that you can find on YouTube that were from um, the uh, Masters of Horror series. Is this a video podcast? Uh, no, it's an audio podcast. Oh, but the the interviews are from Masters of Horror. Well, this is this is a new interview, but Mick Garris has interviewed him numerous times. Is what, oh, is okay, what I'm I saying. understand. 
Um, so you may have, you may be familiar with him interviewing John mm-hmm. Carpenter before. This is a new discussion with them, which is all their discussions are great because they've known each other for years and years and years. So it's just like friends bantering. And so you get a little bit of, I mean, John Carpenter is still your classic John Carpenter where he's, you know, sort of, he'll be a little just blunt or coy with, with stuff. Um, but, uh, because they have that friendship, you get a little more of him opening up about, about stuff. They talk about Starman a little bit. They talk about apparently he's scoring another film this year as well. Um, so there's a lot of great stuff in there. I will link to this in the show notes as well as another podcast episode, uh, the scored to death podcast, which is a, a pretty new show. I think this is only the third episode, but, uh, the host Jay Blake Fashira interviewed John Carpenter's son, Cody Carpenter about, um, the work that he's done with his father, um, particularly, you know, starting out scoring cigarette burns and pro-life, the two, uh, masters of horror episodes that John Carpenter did. And then, you know, talks, he talks with them about, um, his, his own, you know, personal, uh, kind of solo music and then, and then playing in the band with John Carpenter live recording the lost themes and anthology and, and all that stuff. So, uh, that, that's a pretty good interview as well. That came out, I think, only maybe a week or two ago. Um, but I'll, I'll link to that as well. Uh, a lot, like, great stuff to fill up your ears um, after you listen to this episode, of course. So he had some good stuff to say about Starman then? Yeah, they talked about it a little bit, um, which actually reminds me, Jake, what do you say we discuss Starman right now? Define discuss. When do you have to be there? What? In Arizona, when do you have to be there? Do you see this little star? Star? What star? Where? There. Oh, we call that the sun. When this little... When the sun appears mid-sky three more times, I must be at Arizona. You mean 12 noon, three days from now? Yes. And what happens if you don't get there in time? Then they will go. Without you? Yes. What will you do then? Then I will die. Die? Understand? You look for food station. Okay, Jake. So for a little bit of chronological context, on the last episode, we discussed Escape from New York. Now we are skipping ahead a couple of films uh, because we've already discussed those. After Escape from New York, uh, we got The Thing in 1982, which was actually the very first episode of The Carpenter Shop. He was on a roll, wasn't he? I mean, it, it kind of depends on who you ask. At the time, yes and no. I mean, because The Thing, the thing, no one turned out for The Thing. Critics hated The Thing. So... I mean, from as a craftsman, yeah, but as a uh, as a bankable Hollywood director, not really. And then and then he follows that up with Christine, which is a you know does is a decent performer. But then after following Christine, 
uh, we we get Starman. And Starman, he made actually as a sort of a direct response to uh, sort of the backlash for the thing. The fact that he said basically that he, he made it because he wanted to prove that he could still make a bankable Hollywood film. So in a way, uh, Starman is to John Carpenter what Jack is to Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> Don't make that comparison. <laughs> Except it's a very, it's a much better movie and doesn't have Bill Cosby. In it. Now, now, the first thing I'd like to say is I, I do have a theory for artists that when they make their finest work and the critics crush it and the audience doesn't embrace it, it has a strong possibility to, to destroy the artist. Just like, it can derail a career. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's fair. I don't think that happened with Carpenter per se. He's still got some great stuff coming up in the 80s. No, it didn't. And that's what I'm impressed with is that he continued to make good movies. Because even look at something like Citizen Kane. Of course, Orson Welles had a great career after. But he made what clearly was a fantastic film that was not appreciated for 20 or 30 years. Sure, sure. Um, so, so it's impressive that anything good came after um, what was cons- the thing I think was straight up considered a flop yeah, at the time. Yeah. And, and Christine was kind of panned. It was, it was in the middle, but still. Yeah. So, I mean, you can, you can understand why he would want to make this. I mean, this is maybe the closest thing to a Disney movie that, uh, that Carpenter's ever made. It's, it's almost certainly the most non John Carpenter film John Carpenter has ever directed. Um, a, a little bit of the story here. So an alien craft enters the Earth's atmosphere and the U.S. Air Force uh, shoots it down somewhere over Wisconsin. And then a glowing alien life form assumes the physical characteristics of Scott Hayden, who is a deceased house painter played by Jeff Bridges. And so then his wife, Ginny, played by Karen Allen, reluctantly embarks on a cross-country trip with the Starman from Wisconsin to Arizona. And in an interview from the time, you know, 1983, when this came out, uh, Carpenter described it as something like it happened one night, but with sort of like a sci-fi twist on it. Uh, so, Jake, I have two questions for you up top here. Uh, first of all, we're coming from Christine to Starman. So... How do you feel about Carpenter's trajectory at this stage? And then secondly, I know you love road films. So how much do you love Starman? Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that. Let's handle the first question first. Okay. The trajectory. Like, like I said, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to recover from uh, things that you feel are good and the audience does not appreciate. I, I, think he did a, I think he did a really good job here. But it probably felt like a step down at it felt like a step down in production value from Christine. Christine felt like he had all the money in the world. I don't know how many dark stars the budget is on this one, but it, it did not feel like it had the budget of Christine. Oh no, Jake, you're way off on this. This is What? Yeah. No, this I mean, he's got he's got ILM effects in this. He's got a lot of this is the the most he's ever had handed to him uh, on this film. It just seems so. Maybe it's just that Christine benefited from a really nice Blu-ray um, re-release, and this one, the one I saw, the, the the transfer wasn't great. Maybe that clouded a little bit, or maybe the special effects just didn't hold up to the same degree. I think I think part of it is the fact that Christine is all of those practical effects, and mm-hmm. and this is because Christine Christine was I think just under ten million. This is twenty four million. Are you kidding me? No. I'm not, but there's a lot of visual effects. There's a lot of, and and there are things that look pretty dated now, like that sort of like blue vignette that you see when you, you sort of see like 
space orb vision coming into the log cabin and stuff. Um, there are a lot of things that look more dated, I think, because there are, you know, they're doing mats and they're doing these, these compositions and stuff with, uh, with the stuff or like Jeff Bridges, uh, when they, his hair's sticking up and they've got him, uh, composited onto the, uh, like the front, uh, stoop and his hair sticking up cause they've actually shot him upside down and stuff like there, there are things that look a little goofy and bad, but they're also, I mean, at the time they were, they were pretty remarkable. what do you think about the growing clone baby? Oh, I, you, you don't like the growing clone baby? No, I loved it. That was my favorite part. That was my favorite effect in the whole movie. You know, it took three teams to make that. Really? So the initial baby is, is one team. And then the sort of like child whose arms and legs grow, which has, has a very like American werewolf in Paris sort of look to it. That's another team. And then sort of the stop motion um, face going from like adolescent to Jeff Bridges is another is another group. Well, let me ask this. Maybe I misread it. He is the star child from the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey at the beginning, right? <laughs> no, I don't think he, so. He, maybe I just tied those together on my own. I don't know. God, but that no, that baby is pretty amazing. So the the, he, yeah. the, the teams where it was Dick Smith and then Stan Winston, and then Rick Baker. And Rick Baker is, uh, he, he did a bunch of the stuff on like Videodrome, and, and um, he's, he's done some pretty amazing, as well as Stan Winston. Um, but Stan Winston was doing uh, makeup effects, and um, Dick Smith was doing special effects stuff. So to, to be able to bring in those three guys for what, like 15 seconds? You got to have quite a budget. Yeah, we watched fourteen million of the budget in two minutes of the movie. But I mean, there's there's a lot of great there's a lot of great stuff here. I I still think as as dated as some of the, the stuff with the that that final scene with the crater is, mm-hmm. it's still also pretty beautifully realized. Oh yeah, no, I I like I like that. Um, I will say one other thing about about the movie before we move forward. Did you get a, a, a Close Encounters of the Third Kind feel from this movie? I mean, there's a little Close Encounters. There's also definitely a little E.T. And that, yeah. that's got to go back. I mean, so ironically, from what I understand, uh, Columbia was working on this in like the late 70s. They They had the script. And then another... Alien comes to Earth script came to them and they passed on it and it was um, ET and then okay. ET came out and they're like ooh we gotta shelve this and it went through like I think it went through five other directors before it landed with John Carpenter like John Carpenter after the thing was a disaster got fired from Firestarter um, okay and which was a Stephen King which was another Stephen King adaptation mm-hmm. correct. Um, and then ended up getting, getting this as like, I mean, so he's kind of coming in as a journeyman. Um, and it, it feels a little more like a journeyman movie, even though it still says John Carpenter's Starman up the top. Um, I, I think there are still John Carpenter touches throughout. Um, I mean, obviously you've got the Panavision, obviously you've got, uh, the action, which I think, you know, like, they may have actually gotten kind of lucky with getting, you know, getting their sixth pick because 
I don't know. I mean, obviously, if they had gotten like Spielberg, but he wasn't even on the the list. It was. I don't know how many of the other guys, other than maybe Tony Scott, who was who was up there, uh, would have done as great with the action as uh, as Carpenter did here. Oh, I. I, I I agree. Did well. I I just think, especially since we bring up Spielberg, this did feel like Carpenter playing Spielberg a little bit. And a little th- bit, I'm sure. But you got to think also with the context of like it's it's him saying, "Well, ET made a lot of money. The thing didn't." So there's probably a bit of that going on. Like there's definitely I where I where I feel it the most is it feels more like ET to me. Um, at the very end when Karen Allen's like looking up at the spaceship and the lights go from like heavy red to bright white. I, I haven't, I haven't seen ET in 25 years. Well, that's, that's almost directly out of ET. Yeah. I, 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 but also it feels like going to Arizona to go in the crater felt a lot like going to, to devil's tower. Sure. 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 That, sure. that felt a lot, uh, similar to me. Um, it, but I will say this, it definitely was Spielberg through Carpenter. I just didn't feel Carpenter's voice as much in this one as I did in some of the other ones, probably because he did not write it. Well, not only did he not write it, but it's also, it doesn't really have his cynicism in it. It doesn't right. have, I mean, this is, I think, the first sex scene we've seen in a John Carpenter movie as well, uh, which I think he handled pretty well. No, I think he did too. I was going to say, is this the first happiness we've seen in a John Carpenter movie? The first bit of love, period, from between any characters. I mean, generally his generally his characters are not concerned with those sorts of things. His characters are concerned with getting jobs done, and yeah. and you know, there's there are those masculine relationships, and there are, I mean, you've got the maybe honestly the closest thing you have to a romantic relationship comes from Assault on Precinct Thirteen, and that's still just a little. It's it, it's in looks and exchanges. It's not full-blown like oh i love you we got a kiss well i i guess the uh i guess christine sort of had a boyfriend girlfriend thing sort of going on yeah it's a little different though and he's but, not but he, he felt way more comfortable telling a love story uh between a guy in a car <laughs> than between two people is what it looks like yeah well and he's also in his he's fitting into that horror glove for sure Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think he also, he flexes his muscles some in some really interesting and surprising ways. You know, I, I wasn't sure about John Carpenter doing comedy and there's, you know, there's always a little bit of dry comedy throughout his movies, but this is, I think the funniest is, I, I think that's safe to say, would you? So far of all the stuff, I don't know. I haven't seen everything yet, but, uh, Dark Star had some comedy. Dark Star has some comedy, but that's all. And I think a lot of that comes from Dan O'Bannon, though. True. Um, yeah. This this is I, I I will say I've seen uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Memoirs of an Invisible Man is not as funny as this. Okay. Definitely not as funny. Hmm. Um, but no, I think I think he handles the comedy well. You know, it's mostly centered around that sort of fish out of water nature. And the fact that Bridges is so good at this, like this is the only the only Oscar nomination that uh, a Carpenter film has ever gotten is for Bridges for his uh, he got a, an acting Oscar, or nomination for this film, um, which kind, uh, kind of surprises me. Define surprises. I loved I love that bit. I, I want to do it all night. <laughs> I, 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 I think that I enjoyed that every single time he did it. Um, do you think, do you know if Carpenter wanted uh, Kurt Russell for this or was it a studio wanted Jeff Bridges? Was it an availability thing? So 
actually, Jeff Bridges was considered for both uh, R.J. McCready and Snake Plissken and didn't get it because Russell got it because he had a prior relationship with Mm -hmm. and and he was perfect for those roles um, as well. I think from what I understand, uh, Kevin Bacon was cast or almost cast. And then Tom Cruise was also considered. um, But Bridges was ultimately picked. And I think he's he's absolutely the right the right guy for this. Oh yeah, he's he he did a very good job. His bird-like mannerisms are impeccable. I mean, he mm-hmm. he just does he does such a great job of making you feel like he is like I, I think in Spielberg's review he says something to the effect that you you feel like someone has embodied Jeff Bridges's body because of the way that he's slightly off. And that's that's about right. It's 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 kind of amazing how well you know, you compare this to something like Terminator with Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm-hmm. like playing a robot, but being sort of a robotic. This is something different. This is something where he actually becomes something else, where it's it's not just robotic, but it's something trying to be human, but unable to be. And so you feel that alien creature behind him. Now, I would point out that um, John Carpenter, really good choice to to direct that type of performance being more versed in horror and whatnot, knowing what is unsettling and what is not right. And to, to be a good horror director, you have to really understand, understand human nature. Well, and there's so much that plays off of that as well in this movie where, uh, I mean, especially up at the front when you don't really know where it's going, um, when he, you know, he pulls the gun on her in the car or, uh, you know, early on when she thinks she's being kidnapped and doesn't realize that he does come in peace. Um, he, he, I think he uses those horror instincts really well to build up tension, um, in, in a way that really sold for me. Like I really bought into the, like, this could get dangerous really quick. If, if I hadn't seen the poster and that was trying (laughs) to sell it as a, as a love comedy, I would have been like, Oh, I don't know what, is he kidnapping her? Yeah. Um, and and I think that's one of the things that I, I I have not seen the trailer for this movie, but I'm sure it's like Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen love aliens road trip. Oh man, Starman. I think we need to recut this trailer. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm sure that every audience went in um, not having the fear that somebody would have going in cold, and maybe that Carpenter wanted to pitch it as. Uh, yeah. I'm, but it definitely wholeheartedly goes into the this might be a dangerous situation this alien has a gun and doesn't really understand what what does what does this alien value does he value life and and that's the question that it's kind of the the uncertain thing in uh karen allen's uh character is and does not get sold until the whole deer incident outside the diner that's when she makes the full turn and says oh he is he is a healing being he is a good being he he is not here to hurt people. Yeah, well, and then you've got you've also got that Mark Sherman character, the uh, SETI scientist, uh, Richard Dreyfus from Jaws. Is that who that was? No, was that not him? That's what that character felt like for me. I mean, I guess, I guess, yeah. It's kind of like the kid in from the mainland who under like. Yeah, it, sure. It was a little bit of a trope, just because in in every movie, the scientist is the one who is like, we need to study this. Yeah, but I 
man, I love him as well. I love. Oh, he was great. Basically everything about Mark. I I love the gag about him trying to light a cigar throughout the entire movie. <laughs> And then, yeah. one, and then once he finally sits down with them and talks to them afterwards, he lights a cigar and he just, he couldn't care about anything at all because mm-hmm. he's met an alien. Yep. Um, he's, uh, and, and that actor, uh, Charlie Martin Smith, I, I really like here as well. He went on to, I think, direct like Air Bud and some other family movies. <laughs> uh, but blank check. Is it blank check? Not, I don't think, he, I don't think he did blank check. No. Oh, that's um, a damn shame. Uh, but, yeah, he's. I mean, he's great. Karen Allen's great. Jeff Bridges is phenomenal. Um, I, dude, I, I love this movie. I like this movie a lot. You probably liked it a little more than me. Um, I, I enjoyed it, and the, and and this is one of those movies where looking back on it, um, I have many, many good things to say about it because there are memorable things that stood out to me. But while watching it, I didn't necessarily buy it a hundred percent. And and sometimes you're just not in the right mood for the type of movie that you watch. So I, I don't want to go and totally fault it, but it did not seem as flawless as some of his other works seemed to me. And and maybe it's that I really wanted that John Carpenter voice coming through a little clear. Yeah, I mean that could that could definitely be as well that there's there's a little bit of just signal noise in what you're expecting versus what you get. Um, I the thing that I that I liked so much is just from the start it felt different. And so mm-hmm. it, I kind of got on that. Okay, we're we're gonna we're gonna have a fun movie. We're gonna have something that's, you know, we're not. It, it's not gonna end in the at, with the end of the world. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> um, and Jeff Bridges is so charming, even from like the the vintage like eight millimeter film of the the dead guy. Um, it I don't know, man. It it's a like. It feels like a movie that could only have come from, you know, like the early mid mid eighties and it's, it's just a perfect sort of time capsule. And it also, you know, you, you brought up Kurt Russell earlier. It would have been weird if Kurt Russell was in this just because it also feels like, uh, I think, I, I think we discussed this a little bit after you had watched it. Uh, you said something to the effect of it could be like the happy prequel to, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy volume two. <laughs> I really believe that. Um, if you know the ego backstory, if you've seen that, not to spoil anything, very similar, very, very much similar. Yeah, very similar. And, you know, they actually, there was a Starman TV show that sort of, I think, went along the lines of, oh, what happened? And and Jeff Bridges has, has said as recently as like the past year in interviews that like he'd be down for a Starman sequel. <laughs> I, w- I would love to watch that. Starman I, Jr. I, I, I don't know how it would play out, but that, that sounds... uh. That sounds great. Um, But but the ultimate thing is um, I appreciate seeing John Carpenter do other things. In no way am I upset that he did other things, but it does not bring me the enjoyment of the things he does best. Yeah, sure. Well, and I think what this movie proves is that John Carpenter could have been an incredible journeyman director if that's what he wanted to do. I mean, I'm not saying that we... I by any means wish he had gone that direction because I think he wouldn't knowing his personality. I don't think he would have put up with it very long. And, and also like it would be a travesty to not get anything that comes after this, but um, he, he's super, super capable of not just operating within his wheelhouse, but uh, getting, getting a little further out of it because he's just, he's an expert craftsman. 
Yeah, and he is. It's it's a weird statement because I think he did a fantastic job directing it. I, I can't point out mistakes that he made directing it. It's just one I didn't enjoy as much as some of the other ones. Yeah. And I liked it, and I would probably watch it again. I'm down for But it's not like a must-watch, and it's it's probably not going to make just the upper echelon of Carpenter classics for me. But but we'll talk more about that later. Well, let's – I mean, we could – you want to just get into get into our categories? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So up first, we, we're going to talk about Score the Score, and this is a little different because we're scoring a score for a film that John Carpenter did not compose the score for. This is by Jack Nietzsche, uh, which is – the the first the first film that we have discussed uh, since we added score the score, of course, Morcone scored the thing, but very much in a John Carpenter sort of style. Uh, what did what do you what do you think of this score? Eh, what I don't really remember it. Really, it's very Lynchian. It's very it's got some Twin Peaksy vibes to it. Um, a lot of sort of like ethereal synth and. And this choral um, sound to it as well. I think they they patched a, a choral vocal to to keyboards or something. I love it. It's it's one of those. It's it, like initially I was sort of like I don't I don't know how I feel about it. And as the movie progresses and as the love story progresses, it just gets better and better and better and better and better. Maybe that's true. I'm not going to claim that that's not true. I'm watching John Carpenter movies, and I love John Carpenter music, and it sets a very clear world. And maybe that's one of the things that subconsciously, uh, not having that strong Carpenter score, made it feel not as much like a Carpenter movie to me. And and I'm watching it. I, I know I should keep my expectations out of it, but I'm watching it to see a John Carpenter movie. Yeah, yeah. And part of that is hearing the John Carpenter music and feeling like, oh my God, this is this is a damn movie. And just not so much. I can understand that. I will say, I think, I think uh, Nietzsche does a pretty good job of staying and, and probably I'm sure Carpenter had some input in this as well, but uh, it, it doesn't get too overly scory. Um, You know, Carpenter always does sort of just a lot of times he, he likes it sparse and Mm -hmm. um, he likes underscore and things that are just sort of, you know, give you a little momentum or give you what you need, but not too much. And I think Nietzsche also hits that right on the head, falls in line with kind of what it's, it's not what John Carpenter would have done if he was doing it, but it feels, it feels of a piece with his uh, sort of instincts as well. I guess I, I like it. I mean, if we're, if we're scoring it out of a score, which it's not John Carpenter, so maybe we shouldn't. But look, look, I, I can I can go first right now. I came here to score John Carpenter scores and chew bubble gum, and I'm all out of John Carpenter scores. So I'm I'm not doing anything. I'm chewing bubble gum. Okay, we we don't we don't have to score. I'll just say I would rate it very high. Okay, That's, I'm not I'm, rating it at all. I'm very I'm very satisfied with this. I'll, one. I'll rate it after a rewatch when my expectations are different. Okay. It's not a fair score for me right now. All right. Well, let's move on to Clash of the Carpenter then. Uh, this is where, an, with every review, we take a John Carpenter badass from the film we're discussing and pit them against uh, our reigning John Carpenter badass. So we began with The Thing. So obviously, R.J. McCready was our, our very first uh, fighter. And he had a pretty good run. He went up against Victor Wong in Prince of Darkness, the creepy innkeeper Miss Pickman in In the Mouth of Madness, Bob Number 20 in Dark Star, but ultimately the shape defeated him 
when we Boo. discussed Halloween. Boo. And then Christine defeated the shape. Yay. The entire crew from Assault on Precinct 13 defeated Christine. Boo. And then from the fog, Blake and his band of saber-wielding sailor lepers uh, defeated the crew from Assault on Precinct 13. Yay. And of course, Snake Plissken eviscerated them. Clearly, there was no other way it could go. So I'm assuming you have Snake up against the star man himself this time. I mean, I think we got to have a Russell on Bridges battle here. It's our our only opportunity to do it. Um, It seems so right, even though like, I mean, it's probably it's not very doodly. um, And the star man still seems kind of doodly. Uh, but yeah, we, we got to have snake against Starman. But the, f- the first thing I think is that I will watch a Russell versus Bridges movie just on its own, like a, a hell in the Pacific type, uh, movie. <laughs> Those two on an Island right after world war two. I'm in, I will watch that movie even today. I would actually, I would probably watch that even more today. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that sounds great. <laughs> like rooster Cogburn versus, versus Russell with his giant, giant chops. Like, yes, I would watch that. <laughs> Yeah, why, why why are we doing this competition? Why are we trying to write this script? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Podcast over. I'm going to be in my room. Um, no, I mean, you, you got to go with Snake, right? I I think you got to go with Snake. Like, but how does he do it? I think he's he's got to he he's find some deceptive way to. I mean, maybe what he does is he just figures out that Starman doesn't want to fight him, and he gets him back to his he gets him back to the crater. <laughs> That's what it is. What Snake does is is the same thing he did in New York. He helps him escape. This is escape from Earth. That's probably what it is. Because, I mean, as long as Snake doesn't fight Starman, and he's not going to fight Starman if he doesn't have to, then Starman's not going to, you know, turn a a, 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 a lug wrench into the molten hot steel. We saw Starman kind of hold his own. uh, But, you know, Snake isn't out to, to just kill people. He's out for survival. It's just, it's just survival. He's out for survival. He he has no gripe with him. He's not an agent of the U.S. government. He's more likely to team up with him. But it's not so much Snake defeats Starman as Snake Plissken assists Starman in leaving. Yeah. Starman doesn't even want to be in this fight. He doesn't know why. He d- def- Define Clash of the Carpenters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so it's Snake. Obviously, it's Snake, which means that we're going to come up to our first Russell against Russell next. <sighs> I can't wait. I can't, I can't wait. W- it's it's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh-huh. Okay, so let's move on to the final uh, category, which is the Carpenter Cannon. And I'll just run through them. I suspect you're not going to go with Carpenter Classic, Jake. Oh, don't speak for me. You don't know. You don't You don't know me. Okay, well, we've got Carpenter <laughs> Classic, which means that it's it's uh, belongs at the upper echelon of John Carpenter films. Uh, then we've got Deep Dive, which means it's certainly worth seeing. It's worth discussing, uh, but it's not without its faults either. And then we've got Just for Johnny's Mommy, which means, oh, John Carpenter, why did you make this movie? <laughs> uh, one that I have not had to break out yet. Um, I, I, You know, I only did with Escape from L.A., and I don't regret it. I still think you're wrong. So here, here's what I'll say, and this might have been kind of along the lines of what you had to say about Escape from L.A., uh, just for different categories. If this is a deep dive, it's the highest deep dive. But if it's the Carpenter Classic, it's the lowest Carpenter Classic for me. So there's nothing sort of in between those two. If I have to slot it in one, it's just, it's just the number one deep dive. I can respect that. I, here's the thing. I expected to leave this one and tell people, 
oh no, you got to go watch this. Like I kind of like I did within in the mouth of madness. I went and told other people that. Well, and I I probably got your hopes up a little high as well, sending you a clip from that interview where he compares it to it happened one night. Well, and yeah, and and I I do love I do love some Capra, but. The the thing is, I had my hopes up from just hearing about it, just even knowing Jeff Bridges was in it. He was nominated for an Academy. There was a lot of things that yeah. told me I was really going to love this movie. And I liked it, but I didn't love it. And I know it's a little bit just this is what I felt about it, but um, I'm slotting it in deep dive. And I reserve the right to change that on a second viewing, but it's in deep dive. Uh, for me, I'm going Carpenter Classic for a few reasons. First of all, I just the utter joy I had with this movie. It was so much fun. I I loved spending time with weirdo Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen and Mark Sherman. And uh it was it was a whole lot of fun. But also I like that it stands out as another sort of film that John Carpenter proves he can make. And I think so I think it belongs in the canon of Carpenter Classic because it's another notch in the belt of oh, this is this is another trick that he has up his sleeve. Uh, and so I, I think it's important there. I think it is, but I, I think that it's it's important if you are a Carpenter fan, if you want to know more about John Carpenter, if you love John Carpenter, but I, I just don't think it's it it fits in with just the classic sci-fi movie. And the weird the weirdest part about this is this checks every box for me. I know. It's a road trip, it's it's a sci-fi, it's John Carpenter. I wanted to. I wanted to like it even more, and that, and that maybe that's what it was. I maybe the second time I watch it, I see it for what it is, and not for what I wanted it to be. Yeah, and that's. I mean, those are good aspirations to have, though. Yeah, I, I just love some John Carpenter. I, I can't, I, I can't just write it off. I haven't written off any of his yet. And and maybe that's the problem. You just didn't have enough direct John Carpenter to the vein in this one. I can respect that. I yeah. I I guess so. Uh, so, Chris, do you have a beer pairing to go with Starman? Define beer pairing. <laughs> um, well, usually we treat it as the beer that you drink while watching the movie. Oh, well, in that case, I do and I don't. All right. What what do you got? So I knew early on that I wanted to go a little different with this recommendation uh, because I wanted to recommend something that I think Starman would really enjoy. And seeing as Starman's perhaps favorite thing on Earth ever, besides the one thing that he did, um, is the Earth Treat Dutch Apple Pie. I decided perhaps instead of a beer, it would be more appropriate to recommend a cider, which is why I am pairing Starman with Texas Honey Cider by Austin East Cider in Austin, Texas. Uh, now, this is a cider coming in at 5% ABV, no IBU because it is cider, and it's a fairly dry um, apple cider with a nice sweet hint of honey, um, It's which is really refreshing. It's not too terribly sweet or overpowering. Um, there's a nice balance to it, and I actually prefer uh, this Texas honey over just the regular dry apple cider original um, from... Austin East Cider. And uh, it's it's a really, I mean, it's a great like springtime, summertime sort of sipper. Uh, but I think it in liquid form, it, it could be about the closest thing that we're going to get to Dutch apple pie. Uh, I did consider looking at some like apple pie beers, but that just seemed wrong and like 
no one was going to enjoy it. Uh, so I, I think this is the right, the right pick, uh, Texas honey cider by Austin East cider. Drink it while enjoying Starman. Um, and Jake, where can we see Starman? Hold on. I wanted to recommend something too, to pair with the movie. Oh, by all means, recommend something. Can I do a coffee pairing? Do a coffee pairing, Jake. <laughs> this might be a weird one. I, uh, for a Christmas gift, I got like a, um, they, they send coffee samples in the mail to me to try and like, uh, taste different types of coffee. This is, uh, from Broom Wagon Coffee. It's an Ethiopia, I'm about to butcher a word, Yerga Chefi Coke Co-op. Okay. And it is the most dessert-like coffee I've ever had in my life. I drank it and I would have sworn I was drinking like a blueberry juice or something yep. infused with blueberries. Yep. And it was purely coffee. Ethiopian beans have, have a lot of fruitiness to them. A whole lot. This tasted like blueberry ice cream. I love Ethiopian beans. That is what I make all my cold brew with. Yeah, and, and while it's not what I always want from coffee... It's interesting to see coffee do something different. And also, it's a dessert, which was uh, all over this movie as well. <laughs> Love us some dessert food. So so that is my recommendation, and I'll send it to Chris to put in the show notes. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, hey, coffee pairing. You know, sometimes, sometimes you're watching a movie late. You got to have something with some caffeine to keep you up. You know what, Jake? I got a coffee pairing for the next one as well. So oh, I'm excited. All right. Well, Starman is currently streaming on Showtime and available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. If you have something to say about the film, hit up our assistant, Henry Swanson, at Express at CarpenterCast.com, and he'll relay the message to us. Or, if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Hang in there, kid. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations you won't want to miss. Jake, it is really red recommendation time once again, and uh, I'm curious, what are you recommending to us this time? I kind of feel bad about recommending the current reigning best picture winner, like it's some kind of underground thing you haven't heard of. Define kind of feel bad. I don't feel bad at all. Uh, go watch The Shape of Water. You like uh, a woman falls in love with otherworldly being. Um, you like uh, a, a heart of gold kind of movie. You like a a, a Capra movie that's not quite a Capra movie because it's also a sci-fi movie. Like, th there's a lot of parallels between Starman and Shape of Water. And I don't want to spoil too much of Shape of Water, 
um, because I think it's fantastic to just go into it not really knowing anything how I went into it. I will spoil something. <laughs> oh, no. What are you? Michael Shannon plays a bad guy. <sighs> Why would you do that to people, Chris? <laughs> Let them make their own decisions about if he's a good guy or bad guy. He's a bad guy. He's playing the most Michael Shannon bad guy possible, and it's amazing. It's, it, amazing. It is, it's a really good performance. I'm happy with it. Uh, enjoy watching it. He's he's bad, but all all that being said, I don't want to say too much about it. And I, I know you've probably heard some hype about it. Uh, you're probably listening to this not long after the Oscars. People are probably asking what the heck was Shape of Water because I didn't see it. Some people at work or whatever. Watch it. Don't don't be scared off by things that people might be saying about it. Give it a fair shot. Uh, my second really rad recommendation is to take two hours and do not watch three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Just don't do it. It's a terrible movie. It's terrible. It's controversial. You're probably mad at me now. It's a bad movie, guys. I haven't seen it. I can't be mad. But uh, I guarantee you I will take two hours and watch it and then decide (sighs) if I should be mad at you. I can't recommend it. Um, It's one of the lowest ratings I've ever given to a movie on Letterboxd. Wow. I think I gave it one star. Wow, that's low praise. And and I guess you could make an argument that I feel passionately about it and therefore there's something there. I I I felt it was poor in almost every way. Maybe I'll go back and eat my words one day, but that would require me watching this movie again and I don't think I'm ever going to do it, but I'm so angry at it that I will sit down with another person and watch it to make sure they react the way that I reacted to it. Or to see what the heck they liked about it. I keep getting people to put it in the words and like, you just don't get it. It's like, you got to try, man. Sell me on it. I, find me on Twitter and try to sell me on this movie. Oh, Peter Peterson Hill could probably try to sell you on it. Yeah, he tried, but I think I just called him dumb. I, I'm not very friendly to people when I'm talking about this movie. I'm sorry if I've offended somebody so far. Are you turning into a character from this movie? <laughs> I really hope not, or I'd be irredeemably bad. In every way. <sighs> All right. Well, watch The Shape of Water, guys. I think we lost listeners, Chris. Go ahead and re- recommend yours. Everybody turn the podcast off. All right. Well, I, first of all, I will, I'll co-sign The Shape of Water, and I'll say that it is the most Guillermo del Toro movie that Guillermo del Toro has ever made. But uh, saying that, I'd realize that I don't think I'm going to get anyone else to see it who hasn't seen it, because if you're a fan of him, you've probably already jumped on and if you're not you definitely should it's it's wonderful i do want to say it's an interesting thing how a director can make a number of movies and then finally make the one that is most like them it's the same way i felt about wes anderson uh for grand budapest hotels like oh he finally went max wes anderson yeah very similar he's 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 been moving toward he's been moving the direction of the shape of water his entire career that's it, it, it's I when that's it's accurate. you finally see all the things that made them unique come out at the same time in the same movie yeah, it, it, it's just the most distilled version of of that director. I'm sorry, you can continue. <laughs> OK, so I'm going to go with uh, a movie from another director that I love, a director who John Carpenter is known to love uh, and a movie that is an outlier in their collective body of work. Uh, I'm recommending Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, directed by Howard Hawks. Uh, this is a musical starring Marilyn Monroe. She plays the character Lorelai Lee, who is a showgirl. She's engaged to this kind of rich schmuck, and his father really disapproves of their relationship and of the proposed marriage. And so he hires a detective to kind of catch her cheating when she goes on a journey to Europe um, on a cruise ship before... 
before the wedding. And singing and hilarity ensues between Lorelai and her best friend Dorothy, who is played by a delightful Jane Russell. Um, I would say Jane Russell even outshines Marilyn Monroe in this. Uh, there's also a great young eligible bachelor named Henry Spoffett III, who you absolutely must see. He's, uh, he's a delight, even if he can't act at all. Uh, it's wonderful. I won't ruin the surprise there. Uh, it's definitely an outlier in, in Hawks's canon. It's, it's a musical for God's sake. And it's not, it's not, we've been watching a lot of singing in the rain in the house. It's not singing in the rain. It's not wall to wall music, or it's not one number to the next. There's a lot of, uh, acting and comedy in between. Uh, but it is a whole lot of fun. Uh, Russell is probably the better Hoxian woman than Monroe in this. And Monroe is great, uh, but she does lack the dynamism of perhaps her greatest character, Sugar Cane, in Some Like It Hot. Um, but you know, you get, you get song, you get dance and you get a little, you get a little more than the blonde bimbo that, um, she's made out to be in the beginning. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's worth a watch. You can rent it at all the usual places and I recommend you do. So, so have, have you just been putting on, on the old musicals for your son Cooper just to see what he likes? Is it, is this what's been going on? Is that why this is coming up? Yeah. He loves music. He, and and singing in the rain is his all time favorite movie. I, I'm just glad he found it so early in life. It may not ever change. I, maybe it won't. I, I mean, I'm expecting you know in in a year or two we're going to be doing tap dancing lessons at this I, point. I, I, I feel like it's a rare thing to go like find your favorite movie in life so early. I'm not walking around like look who's talking was a great film. <laughs> right. Well, it's I mean it's it's to the point where like we can be driving home and it's you know if it's like. 6 six thirty, and he's getting cranky and it's it's getting close to bedtime he's in the back of the car i just put on like fit as a fiddle on, on just in the car and he instantly calms down like he just loves it he loves everything about it it's gonna be funny when he grows up and goes to film school and they're like everyone should watch singing in the rain and he's like that children's movie isn't that like barney or something also i don't think people watch barney anymore i'm not really sure no no, last I heard, the the guy that was in the Barney outfit's now doing like tantric sex stuff. Oh fuck! That's another. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. That's a wrap for another episode of the Carpenter Shop. You can find show notes, archives, and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at carpentercast.com. And check out our mothership podcast at warstartsatmidnight.com. You can say hello to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show. Tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, tell that cute person in the gym who's always listening to podcasts, or rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at Express at carpentercast.com. Or, if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The Carpenter Shop theme song and our featured music this week comes from Philip K. Dickey and Dragon in 3. Find more at dragonin3.com. We'll be back next month with a review of John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. Find it at your local library or wherever you rent motion pictures. And don't forget, you can catch us in just over a fortnight on War Starts at Midnight. The episode will be a little late this time. Uh, we will be discussing Wes Anderson's latest stop-motion animated film, 
Isle of Dogs. It is sure to be a great time. Thanks for listening, folks. Take it easy. Up yours. Up yours.